This episode of Straight Up was recorded in April 2015. It features Nusheen Rashidian from Cannabis Wire and Danny Danko from High Times discussing the weed beat with me, Jarrett Murphy of City Limits. So let's talk about just where things are in New York State. There's a lot of talk about different regimes of decriminalization and medical marijuana across the country. And in New York, there's been a lot of discussion about it. Where does New York stand on this kind of spectrum? Well, statewide, uh, there is a medical marijuana law that uh, Governor Cuomo has pushed through. It's very, uh, very strict and there doesn't allow for home growing, doesn't allow even for smoking marijuana. Um, very much just vape only, um, with certain companies allowed to produce uh, the material. So that's statewide. And then for the city, uh, we were the marijuana arrest capital of the world with over 50,000 uh, arrests a year. And now since de Blasio has taken over, he has changed that so that marijuana arrests are, are far lower than that. And the commissioner, police commissioner Bratton sort of reluctantly went along with that, although there's been some back and forth. <laughs> what do you think the restrictions in the state's medical marijuana law, what, what is that about? I think that a lot of the newer states are playing it safe. I think that they're trying to get as close as possible as to what they perceive to be the sort of pharmaceutical model. The problem in New York also is that uh, we don't, we're not allowed to vote on referendums the way they are in some states. There's a, a, a small number of states that where all of it has to come up through the legislature. And the politicians, frankly, are just cowards. They, they're far behind the people. People of New York State clearly want uh, legal marijuana uh, medicinally and uh, for adult use in general. And um, basically, if we were allowed to vote on it, it would be already have passed. Um, so the bill ends up being very watered down because Republicans in the Senate get to have their say and everybody has their say. And by the end, um, what Cuomo comes up with is basically that the bill that's very restrictive. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that if, if there was no voter initiative allowed in California, I don't know where the movement would be because it's like the first, I think, five or six states that went, they went through voter initiative. Right, California, Oregon, I think also I did think, that way. Uh, yeah, Maine, Colorado, Colorado, I mean, go, you go yeah. on and on. Yeah, so I think that that's what it comes down to. I think if it was an initiative process, I imagine that New York probably would have, not honestly, they would have been first, but they probably would have done it a few years ago. So the players here in New York, I mean, we've talked about Cuomo, is he committed to this? And you've mentioned some folks, does anyone stand out as like an opponent in the state? Who are kind of the people who are part of this debate? Uh, well, Cuomo's kind of, you know, on the fence, I think. You know, he, he recognizes the need of certain patients for marijuana, but he doesn't want to be the governor that legalizes pot <laughs> in New York. So uh, de Blasio is also uh, a supporter of the cause, but he also has so many other things on his plate that I don't think it's a major priority. Now, he did you know, change the rules um, so that there's fewer arrests. As far as opponents, uh, I don't think Bratton's very excited about uh, you know, the rule changes. He clearly recently mentioned that you know, the uptick in uh, gun crimes and, and murders was a result of marijuana you know, being uh, decriminalized or however they want to put that. I want to pick that apart a little bit, actually. Was Bratton saying that it was because of the decriminalization? Or was he saying kind of a version of the argument a lot of people have made, which is that the prohibition of marijuana leads to kind of you know, violent defensive drug turf? What, what exactly was, what was the argument he was making there? I think from his perspective, ending stop and frisk and uh, reducing the uh, ability of police to make marijuana arrests 
keeps guns on the street because maybe once out of a hundred times uh, after the uh, stop and frisk, they'll find a gun, or after a marijuana, someone smoking a marijuana on the street, they'll search them and arrest them and find a gun or something, and so they'll they consider that getting a gun off the streets. So I think that that's the equation that he's making I there. Think he inadvertently, though, I think a lot of the advocates were saying he did inadvertently make the second argument, which mm -hmm. was by linking uh, the, the underground market to violence. He was sort of making the case of people who want to legalize by saying, well, yeah, there is violence because it's illegal, not, not you know, like he, so there's two ways to look at it. I don't think he meant to make that argument, but ended up supporting, I think, the people who want to legalize. So we talked about uh, Bratton and de Blasio, and uh, in terms of media absurdity, one thing that I read recently was uh, an account of a dispute between Bratton and de Blasio over police staffing, and in it, sort of far down in the article, they referred to de Blasio as an admitted college-age pot smoker, which made it sound like he was like a kiddie porn merchant or something. Um, but I'm sure you guys have uh, best hits and, and best misses in terms of recent media coverage of this topic. Does anything stand out in your mind as particularly absurd? Uh, I think, you know, there's a, some pushback in Colorado where there's been some incidents. A um, young man committed suicide, and they tried to link it to an edible that he ate, um, you know, regardless of his mental state and, and his um, possible illnesses that he might have. They just, you know, said he ate an edible and he killed himself. And there was another instance where a guy, um, like, shot his wife, and they tried to blame that on marijuana edibles, you know. Uh, so those, you know, those kind of things where the, you know, they find the one thing where they can actually grab onto it and say, well, here's what happens when you legalize pot is pretty preposterous, I think. Yeah, I think the, the media is mostly maturing on this front. But, you know, you still see it. Your post recently had referred to something as like the wacky weed. And, you know, they said that New York State has gone to pot, which a lot of, you know, a lot of journalists always use that phrase. And so we're getting further and further away from Cheech and Chong jokes and, and sort of Rocky Mountain High jokes, but they still happen. Right. The way that journalism has shifted to sort of like clickbait sort of things, you know, you got to use the munchy joke or the pun to kind of draw people in. Stock up on Doritos because pot's legal. You know, they're and, who, and, and really, who needs an excuse to eat Doritos? They're <laughs> delicious. So the mainstream media, there have, you've mentioned some maturation in general, but also I think it's been surprising that a lot of outlets now are devoting reporters to this beat, you know, Forbes and BuzzFeed and others. What do you think of the quality of that coverage, and what does that represent? Is that about a realization that you know this is going to become a more and more legitimate part of business and medical treatment in the country? What, what do you think is behind that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think in a lot of ways it's overdue, and it's changed so quickly. I mean, I remember when I was leaving journalism school to work on a book about cannabis. When I said that, it was almost like really embarrassing to say, and people did not take it seriously. It was sort of like, what are you doing? This, you know, go get a job. Like what? Like that's like sort of this untouchable subject. Um, and my classmates sort of just didn't know what to say about it because it wasn't an issue anyone knew about. But now it's like all, a lot of those people are coming back and saying, hey, you know, like I'm doing a story about this or I'm doing a story about that. So I think that it's become acceptable. It's safe now. And then also it's, it's a political issue, right? So you have, you know, Republican presidential candidates commenting on this. So the minute that you realize this is going to probably come up, actually, it's, I think it's absolutely going to come up during the election and election coverage is, is hot, you know, these reporters need to start getting well-versed on this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think uh, they're catching up, basically, is what they're doing. They're, they, they, for a long time, it's been kind of the same way. And now, at high times, we're being approached by a lot of uh, 
financial institutions, you know, like CNBC or, or uh, you know, Wall Street Journal, uh, Bloomberg, and so because they're interested in the business angle, and I think that's gone a long way to changing perceptions because there's money to be made now, and they they view it as inevitable. You know, the wind is at our backs, whereas before we were always. I mean, the idea of legalizing pot before Prop 215 passed in California was a pipe dream. I mean, to make a pun, <laughs> but but it was it was it was not viewed as realistic. Right now, it's viewed as inevitable. And how can we cash in? You know, that's kind of the perception. So, when you think about the mainstream approach, how is that different from what what you do? Um, is it is it just that you're steeped in it? You've been doing it longer. Is there an element of advocacy in your kind of journalism? How does it differ from the mainstream approach? I mean, absolutely. I mean, High Times. We've been around now 41 years, okay. and you know, we do advocacy journalism. We try to make people aware of what's going on. Um, not just the, the jokey, funny stuff, but like the drug war news. I mean, if you look at what's happened in Mexico, it's devastating. There's no joke to be made about it. Thousands of people have been killed. Uh, so we try to open people's eyes about that, but you know, we are an advocacy magazine. We, we have a cause, and our cause is to legalize marijuana. And that's not over until all the prisoners, nonviolent marijuana prisoners are out of jail, and people can go about their day and use cannabis as you know, free adults. Yeah, I don't. I mean, so I'm going to launch a publication called Cannabis Wire soon with a co-founder, and it's not. I wouldn't say we do advocacy journalism. It's more. I see. I wanted to do Cannabis Wire because I I have found that people are not really aware of the intricacies of the movement, and I think that I my biggest dream would be that like every voter would go to the ballot box informed, and that people would start asking critical questions about how we legalize. Because I think now. It's getting better, but people are sort of like, do it or don't, right? But it doesn't have to be the way it's been. We don't have to legalize, let's say, the way Colorado legalized or the way Washington legalized. People have options, and I don't think they know what those options are. Everyone that I meet assumes that because I work on cannabis, I am an advocate. Mm -hmm. They assume that I'm a consumer and an advocate, right? Are you an advocate if you say prohibition has failed? Right. And I think journalists need to start asking themselves that question. Like, what can you say that's just a fact, right? right. Can, you, can we just say, hey, let's all agree prohibition has failed. That doesn't mean you're an advocate or that you have like a, a dog in the fight. Right, when there's rampant disinformation, merely informing people, I guess, could be seen as a form of advocacy, but it's actually what journalism is about, right? Right, so I don't think we, we're not having, like we're just not having those you know, conversations yet. And something I was talking to Danny about, which is like, you know, I want AP style to get on in this. I want, I want people to start really discerning, like sometimes people are using decriminalization where they mean legalization. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're calling it the same thing. You know, we, you know, do we capitalize strain names? Do we, you know, these little <laughs> things. Like do we, um, you know, are we counting states with CBD only medical cannabis laws as medical cannabis laws? Some papers do, some don't. So you might see one paper saying one day that they're like 20-something medical cannabis states, another one saying the next day they're 30-something. How confusing is that for readers? So mm -hmm. we're just not yet like coming together, putting our minds together as journalists and saying, like, how do we talk about this properly? So those questions about standards are, I think, really apt, especially when you look at a style of journalism that some people apply to the marijuana beat, which is a kind of personal journalism, which is sort of smoking marijuana so as to equip you to cover marijuana. And I wonder, you know, given that you guys are serious journalists who've written about this for a while, does that, is that a legitimate approach? Does that sort of, sort of just reinforce the stigma about marijuana use? What do you think about people who take that particular bent? I mean, I don't think it's necessary to, you know, be like, I've smoked it, therefore I can write about it. There's a, a great book written by, about, you know, the cannabis industry by 
Trish Reagan, who I think you've been on her show, um, and she says right in the front that she's never smoked. Um, some do and some don't. Some people can't. Some people are allergic to it. That doesn't mean if someone has a cannabis allergy, you know, and they've never smoked, we shouldn't take what they have to say seriously. Um, so I don't know. I've, that seems like sort of a. I do think there is that sort of culture of like, look at me. I, I you know, I smoked a, a joint and got on this bus and did this cool thing or whatever. And and that's a style though. But there are a lot of people who do that sort of immersive journalism. That's okay. I don't think it needs to be all of the coverage. I think we need people who can understand policies and nuance and and who are just smart journalists and who can talk about this in a in an even way. You mentioned in the uh, on your website, which I know you're you're reviving, that cannabis is kind of the nexus of history, politics, culture, law enforcement, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it, and I guess of looking at all that other stuff. Talk about that a little more. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, I think when you say you know you're doing a website about cannabis, people are just sort of like. It's either I'm interested in cannabis, so I will go to your site, or I'm not interested in cannabis, so I won't go to your site. But I don't think that people understand that. You know, I was talking to someone who used to work for the ACLU and who does a lot on criminal justice, and she was like, when I told her about the intersection, she said, wow, now that I know that, I would come to your site because I would want to read about how cannabis you know, meets criminal justice. Or if someone's really into medicine, then they might come and visit the site because they want to know about how cannabis affects the body and how certain medicines are being developed. So I don't see cannabis necessarily is the beat anymore. I mean, it's, it's like the thing that brings together all these other things like sports and, and uh, you know, politics, right? It's, it's, it's something, it's gone bigger than itself in mm -hmm. a way. And I think it's really important to reach um, outside of the, the sort of chorus. You know, you need to get people to understand that it's, that by being curious about cannabis, it doesn't mean you're some like enthusiast and people shouldn't mm -hmm. be scared to like learn more. So I think most people understand the intersection of of cannabis and medicine now, or at least understand it on a broad level, and perhaps also criminal justice. But talk about the economic side of it. Where is the nexus between marijuana and the economy? Sure. Well, obviously, you know, it's a big industry. It's become a big industry. But the, when that sort of took off, was this? It, it, if you look at it and you kind of like overlap it with when the economy really went down, that's when the cannabis industry went up. And so what I saw when I was reporting for my book, A New Leaf, driving across the country, is that a lot of the people who were turning to caregiving or you know trying to start, start dispensaries or sort of these ancillary businesses were people who were losing their jobs or had lost their jobs and were looking for a way to make ends meet. And a lot of the open, openness from states also came from that same sort of desperation, this sort of like pot for potholes thing that, that people sort of throw around. Right, so when you when you're broke and you see this option to make millions of dollars charging, you know, I think the New York State application fee is like two hundred thousand dollars, which is, you know, um, which is sort of pretty high. And actually, another thing is that those fees started going high around the time the economy was depressed. Right, so so really, if you look at, you know, before they were like a thousand dollars for a license, and then they shot up to like fifty, and then a hundred thousand. So if you look at sort of those those two things together, economic desperation was a thing that boosted this industry. Um, and then as far as sort of civil liberties, I think, you know, libertarians are huge supporters of, of the liberalization of cannabis laws. And I think a lot, there are a lot of things that, little things that people don't know about, which is, for example, if you are a medical cannabis patient or a cannabis consumer, in the eyes of the federal government, you are an addict. So you actually cannot be sold a gun. Right, so you, there goes your Second Amendment rights, mm -hmm. um, your Fourth Amendment rights out the window, like you know, Tenth Amendment, like the stop and frisk. So when you, you start looking at you can be denied a transplant, you can be denied, you can be kicked off a transplant positive. list. Wow. Yeah, so there's a guy in California who actually was kicked off a transplant list and died. So there are these, there, you know, I think that again, like 
ha ha Cheech and Chong, but like we're not looking at the fact that like people are being raided. They're ha you know they're getting kicked off transplant lists and dying. They're getting their their rights taken away. They're um, breach of medical records happening happened in New Jersey. It happened in another state. You know that we're you know so it's just I, there's so many really serious. Sort of sobering things happening here. And again, I just don't think that that's made it up to that like sort of high level narrative. How do you talking about the intersection between cannabis and history? Um, take us back a few, a few decades or a few years. How did we get to the point where states like California and Oregon were having these referendums about legalization. Uh, what's the sort of longer history of how we got from, you know, reefer madness to, to that? What do you think led to that change? Uh, I mean, clearly public perception, you know, polls taken in the 80s tell you that maybe 30 to 35% of people supported medical marijuana and decriminalization and legalization. And over time, I think as uh, certain generations got older, uh, it just became more of a mainstream issue and more of an idea. I think people also had enough. I mean, you can only hear about these injustices for so long before you want to do something about it. And that's really what drew me into this world is, is that, uh, you know, people getting arrested, people losing college loans and things like that. I mean, just so many uh, injustices that after a certain point, you've just had enough. But why? I mean, we went through that just say no era with Ronald Reagan and, and Nancy and, and the really big crackdowns and crack babies and mm -hmm. you know all of that hysteria that went on in the 80s. Leading medical researchers are coming to the conclusion that marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug in the United States and we haven't begun to find out all of the ill effects, but they are permanent ill effects. And then I think people at a certain point just had enough of that, you know, that it, was, it was hysteria and we, we worked our way out of it. Yeah, I think, I think that that's absolutely true. I think there was just like a growing demand for change, but I think there was, there was a couple things that happened, you know, not to get very long-winded, but, you know, California is often seen to be the beginning of the medical cannabis movement and it's not actually. It was actually the late 70s that a guy named Robert Randall uh, challenged the federal government said that he needed cannabis, medical cannabis for his glaucoma, and he won that case. He started bringing what were called medical cannabis research laws to states across the country. New York was one of those states. So New York was actually one of these, you know, 30-something states that had a medical cannabis research law and was one of, I think, six that actually got a supply. So the state was actually supplying people with cannabis. That's actually the version of the law that Cuomo initially was trying to, like, revive, hmm. which made no sense because it was, like, the federal government's not going to supply your cannabis like they were back in the 80s. You know, that's not right. happening. So what ended up happening was it was, I think, George Bush, the first, who came in and said, enough with this program. We're not supplying you cannabis anymore. And it was, I think, five years after that, that California stood up and, you know, you had this AIDS crisis and people wanted it and they knew that it would help. These people were going on national TV and consuming their cannabis. There were patients talking. And then, and then this, and that, I think, is what gave this a push through that coupled with, you know, the introduction of, of money. Very, very, very wealthy people went to California, met up with these grassroots advocates, you know, Dennis Perone and these other people have been doing this advocacy for years, and they said, here's a couple million dollars, like, let's, let's make it happen, let's actually put some fuel behind this. And um, so that, that, you know, that introduction of money is, I think, what took this sort of grassroots movement and, and pushed it up, and it's still what gets a lot of these initiative campaigns, these campaigns going. You know, you can't do it 
you can't get a, a, you know, a initiative on the ballot for, for free. You mm -hmm. need millions of dollars. Do you think medical marijuana in other states, and, and most importantly here in New York, is that a logical, feasible political step to broader decriminalization? Is, is that how we should see this as a sort of experiment, or do they move on parallel tracks in your experience and your thinking about it's not, it? It's, it's, it's a hard question to answer because a lot of the opposition to medical cannabis comes from people saying, well, medical cannabis is just a, a, a gateway to legalization. These people are duping us. And you know, the minute we, you know, we pass you know, medical, they're just going to legalize it. And the whole medical thing is a joke. And that's not true. They're very different things. Um, but every legalization initiative has followed a state that's had it for medical. They're, they're, there's a couple that are going to be on, on the ballot soon that have not had medical. Um, and that would be the first that we've ever seen someone go straight to legalization if they pass. Mm -hmm. But it's usually a stepping stone in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the way we view it is, you know, they call it a war on drugs. And we view medical marijuana as sort of getting the wounded off of the battlefield. Hmm. So the war goes on, um, but you've at least taken these people who desperately need marijuana for, you know, epilepsy and all of these problems that they have. Uh, and you, and you've, you've taken them off the battlefield, and now the fight continues. So they like to say it's like you know, a, a Trojan horse kind of thing, but the reality is it's, it is very different. The, uh, like she said, it's, it's, it's a step in that direction, but it's also uh, a positive step that needs to be taken, and then full legalization is the logical sort of conclusion of that. So let's translate this back to Brooklyn. The district attorney, Ken Thompson, uh, shortly after taking office last year, announced that he was going to stop prosecuting many low-level marijuana arrests. The police could keep arresting them, but he was not going to prosecute them. Um, what do you think of that approach? You know, they didn't change the law. He just said, as a prosecutor, I'm just not going to enforce it anymore. When you heard that, was that, is that good news? Or do incremental steps like that bother you because they are so incremental? I mean, I think it's just a smaller version in some ways of what we're seeing on a national scale. I mean, the, the, I mean, that's essentially what the federal government is doing. They're just like, in a lot of ways, not enforcing federal law in all these states that have legalized it. Um, so I, I think that that's what we saw with alcohol prohibition. You know, the law was on the books for a bit longer than people were actually getting arrested. You know, I think New York State might have just sort of opted out in a way. I, so I think that that's just what you do when you know. I think it's what, what some people do when they know that, you know, he, he's not going to get cannabis decriminalized in New York State. It's, or well, completely decriminalized. It's like mostly decriminalized. He's not, you know, he's still in a position where he has to do some level of enforcement. And I think that's sort of symbolic. We've seen a lot of um, symbolic measures. You see a lot of like pockets of the country like decriminalizing or like symbolically legalizing or passing medical cannabis. It's not really talked about because it doesn't mean anything, but you do see that sort of, uh, I think we saw in Michigan, a few areas of Michigan tried to, Maine, yeah, Portland, Maine. So, so that idea of these Localities sort of stepping up and saying, "We, you know, this is where we are at here," is not not unusual. You right. mentioned New York and alcohol prohibition. That uh, the reason alcohol prohibition ended, the ultimate final step was New York State authorities, uh, um, you know, prosecutors and law enforcement refused to help the federal government raid, um, you know, alcohol establishments, and so without that local help, they couldn't continue that process. So it was, that's kind of like also a symbolic thing, like saying, okay, we're not, we're just not going to help you do it. You can right. keep doing it, but we're not going to help you. But and that's kind of what Ken, that's what Ken Thompson's doing. Right. He's saying, right. you can keep arresting people, but 
it's, it's going to be a waste of your time because we're not going to prosecute. Right, symbolic so, practical effect because it's yeah, a good and place. If, yeah. And if there's people who aren't going through the system because of it, then it's definitely a great step in the right direction. So let's look down the road to a day when there is full decriminalization or legalization, whatever you think the ideal might be uh, in New York State. Um, first of all, what does that look like? And does anything worry you about that? Does it, could, it, could something go wrong? What do you see as potential pitfalls um, of that approach? And you know, what do you see as sort of the best case scenario? Like, do the crystal ball thing for us. It's hard to tell because we still don't know what the sort of long-term outcome is in places like Colorado. I mean, Danny was talking about some of the short-term, you know, tax revenue. Uh, we saw reduction in reduction in prescription drug abuse in states that have medical or legal cannabis. Um, but you know, it depends on how New York goes about it. One thing that's been really interesting about New York, at least upstate, is these um, you know cities like Plattsburgh and you know Washington County sort of coming out and and uh, passing these resolutions saying that they want growers to come to their basically economically depressed areas, right? They want that money. So that was sort of um, startling to me. I wasn't expecting uh, you know, upstate areas to sort of come out in favor of this. And I think, I think it's gonna look really different in New York City and out of New York City. You know, New York City is a speck in, in all of New York State. As far as pitfalls, I would think um, if, if the means of production are in the hands of very few people, um, where like so that, only you know ten licensed companies can grow pot, and you know that leads sort of also down the road to uh, pharmaceuticalization of marijuana. So that no, you can't smoke it, but we'll give you a pill, or we'll give you this lozenge, or mm -hmm. uh, something that you put on your skin—a transdermal patch or something—which um, works for some people for medicinal purposes. But if you don't allow people to grow their own, say, or to smoke. Uh, the way that they prefer, then you're just, you're, you're, there's still going to be a black market there. We should strive, I think, for consistency. I do think, obviously, each state is going to set their own rules, but as long as you have, you know, that someone can basically go to jail for decades here for having, you know, in their possession a fraction of what someone is selling for millions of dollars here, that's going to cause problems for any state, including New York. When it comes to when it comes to substance abuse, I mean, it it's, it sort of comes down to math in a way, right? Where a fraction of anyone who drinks alcohol is going to become dependent on it, right? A fraction of anyone who uses cannabis is going to become dependent on it. And if you if you increase the number of cannabis users from 100 to like a thousand, then that that number, that fraction, obviously, is going to go up with it. Um, I think that states like Washington, you know, have been very smart in taking a portion of the tax revenue and going toward education prevention, right? Because that's been so effective with tobacco that we need to take those lessons, not look at like how t the tobacco, you know, how that had failed back in the 80s, but look at what's working now. And the person who, the woman who drafted um, Washington's law looked directly at sort of that tobacco legislation and said, okay, here are things we can do, right? So I think that that's just a reality. You know, it, it's a reality with sex. It's a reality with shopping. It's a reality with gambling. It's a, it's a reality, right? But is that reality reason enough to prohibit cannabis for the other 90-some percent? I, most Americans think no. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about a responsible adult use is kind of, you know, if, if you're responsible, you're not going to smoke morning, noon, and night. And, you know, if you're irresponsible, maybe you will. But... Uh, 
I don't think it's for the government to decide. You know, I mean, let let that be a, a conversation between your doctor and you, um, as it would be with alcohol or anything else. You know. Okay, so we're gonna play a drinking game now. Uh, it's gonna consist of phrases uttered by public figures about marijuana, and whoever gets the answer first shouts it loudest. Uh, we'll get the point. At the end, whoever has the fewest points has to drink their vodka shot. So here we go, first statement. Quote, make the most you can of the Indian hemp seed and sow it everywhere. Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson. <gasps> Sorry, George Washington. Oh. Washington. Okay. Quote, you bet I did, and I enjoyed it. Bloomberg, Bloomberg. she got it. Point for you, all right. Quote, I think people need to be educated to the fact that marijuana is not a drug. Marijuana is a flower. God put it there. Willie Nelson. Of course I know how to roll a joint. Martha Stewart. Very good. Oh man, yeah, that one. Something, a sensation she really cherished. Uh, when I was in England, I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and I didn't inhale, Clinton. and I never... <laughs> That's gonna I be a tie. Know. Know. I now have absolute proof that smoking even one marijuana cigarette. Reagan. Oh. When I was a kid, I inhaled frequently. That was the point. Obama. Obama. <laughs> I think you win. All right. So you gotta drink it down. Let's go. In solidarity to the end of marijuana prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> The Straight Up Podcast is produced by Megan Donis, Shrianka Ray, and Sasha Mathias, and is recorded on location at Bedford Hall in Brooklyn. For more information, visit brickartsmedia.org.